Welcome, everybody, to episode 50 of Generation Jihad. I would say the long-anticipated episode 50. Bill, what do you think? Yeah, it's been a long time coming, Tom. I am Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with my colleague, Bill Rojo. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we've been running FTD's Long Word Journal for many years now. We're going to do a little something different in episode 50 here. For any of my fellow nerds out there, we're going to talk about uh, epistemology with respect to the counterterrorism field. Uh, now, obviously, this is not exactly a, a a hot seller, I would say. I don't think that's how you <laughs> I think you're going to get you get a big audience. As soon as you drop the word epistemology, there's probably a lot of people who are like, what the heck are you talking about? We're out. Um, Did half of you tune out already? Or? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, look, it's one of the longstanding issues that you and I have discussed, Bill, behind, you know, uh, basically, you know, off camera or off outside the podcast. It's one of the things we discuss on the phone quite a bit and via email and discuss with a lot of different contexts. There are basic epistemological problems when it comes to the study of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban, and like-minded or affiliated groups. Basic problems. And these basic problems have existed all these years. And so what do I mean by epistemology or epistemological problems? Well, obviously, epistemology is the study of knowledge or what you know and how you know it. Um, In the case with respect to these terrorist groups, these terrorist organizations, I I think both of us have found, Bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, that basically people make a lot of assumptions that aren't necessarily supported by anything, and then they build their entire analysis on the assumption. Um, you know, and we could point to a lot of different examples of that, and it's it's a very common thing when reading. You know, there, there are a lot of times I'll be reading a paper on, for example, you know what Al Qaeda is today. And it just it's it's just larded with a bunch of assumptions that aren't sourced to anything. They don't come from anywhere. It's just basic perceptions that the author has. And look, this isn't to criticize everybody or to to sort of you know poke my thumb in the eye of the rest of the field, but it, it, I am critical of the fact that there basically have been no standards devised throughout all these years for understanding any of this. That there's no criteria for understanding what's going on. There's no basic benchmarks have been set. We're going to talk what, about what I mean in terms of benchmarks in a second. But Bill, I mean, that's basically right. You're, you're, you share the same concerns, I will say, of all this. I, yeah, more than concerns. Uh, it's a frustration as well. Um, you know, the, the, the key issue in all of this should have been defining our enemies. And we've, we, not you and I, but the, the, the wider field and the U.S. government and, and, Allies have have failed to do this, and it's it's led to issues just as you discussed with, you know, just really just ad hoc definitions of of what Al Qaeda is and what it wants, and putting Western ideas stamps on what Al Qaeda is instead of looking what Al Qaeda tells you that it is or Islamic State or any of these other jihadist groups. Um, yeah, it's very 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 um, difficult to watch this day in and day out in their field. Now, look, I mean, I'll say about this, too, before we get into the nerdy details here, I really hope none of this matters for American national security in the future going forward. Right. Like, I, I hope that this doesn't this doesn't have a there's no conse- no negative consequences for all this that we're about to get into. I suspect there will be. Right. I suspect that there will be. Um, I, I concur, Tom. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, I, I feel like we're at the September 10th, 2001 point where we just stuck our head in the sand, think that we could attack these groups and defeat them using air power. Um, you know, take we've, we've taken our eye off the ball on, on these jihadist groups and they're, they are, um, they're still in the fight and they're still planning and plotting. Um, they still view us as an enemy. And what I'll say about that too is I, I always have bifurcated in my head anyway, um, an assessment of these organizations from the issue of what you should do about them. I think... Yes. When I talk about Concur. the epistem- when I talk about the epistemological problems, I'm talking about the former, not the latter. When it comes to policy, there needs to be a rigorous debate. I'm going to be first to tell you I don't have all the answers or even claim to, and I don't know at this point what America should do in a lot of settings. I mean, if you've heard previous episodes of this podcast, I'm deeply ambivalent at this point about a lot of this. However, that shouldn't change how we view or assess, you know, these organizations, I think a lot of times people read into these organizations, their policy desires, as opposed to the other way around, in terms of figuring out what these groups are doing, and then debating or trying to decide what to do about it, if anything, 
right? Uh, you know, in, in some cases, you know, not doing any, the, 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 you can choose not to do anything in some cases, which is uh, an issue in and of itself when you talk about foreign policy. A lot of times people want to believe that you have to do something. In some cases, I'd say, no, you don't, you don't have to do anything. And sometimes doing something is worse than doing nothing. Um, but none of that should change how our understanding of these organizations and how they operate. So let's go over a couple of things here to, to illustrate our points, Bill. One, I want to talk about, we're going to talk about this new reward uh, offer that's been um, put out by the State Department's Rewards for Justice Program for Abu Obeda Yusuf Alanabi. He's a longtime AQIM leader who was named the overall emir of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb last year. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a new report uh, put out by this team of experts that works for the United Nations Security Council. There are a lot of nuggets in that report that we need to get into. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the political rhetoric or some of the other things that have come up in the news recently, um, including uh, President Biden saying that we're going to use over-the-horizon operations just in case al-Qaeda returns to Afghanistan. And spoiler alert, al-Qaeda is already there. We're not waiting for them to return. So we'll get into that a little bit too. But that reflects an epistemological problem in and of itself. It shows that there's a misunderstanding of what the actual situation is. Regardless of whether or not you agree with President Biden's decision to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan, for example, and you can hear my own ambivalence on all that in previous episodes of the podcast, regardless of whether or not you agree with it or not, that's just not an accurate assessment of what's going on there. So let's start off at the top, Bill. Let's talk Let's talk about Abu Obeda Yusuf Al-Anabi. He's, as Noam Daguerre indicates, he's an Algerian. Uh, he's been, he served a lot of senior roles for AQIM through the years. But here's what I found interesting is the State Department releases this reward of up to $7 million for information on him. This is this program that they use to try and incentivize people to turn over, to betray these jihadis and give up their location uh, to counterterrorism forces or to others, uh, local forces or basically, you know, however, however they want to handle this behind behind the scenes. And there was a line in this reward offer that stuck out to me. Um, it said that Abu Obeda um, Al-Nabi, quote unquote, is expected to play a role in Al-Qaeda's global management. Okay, well, this immediately draws to, to our attention one of the main fundamental epistemological problems when it comes to defining Al-Qaeda. There's this idea that there's this core of Al-Qaeda, and then there are these affiliates. And in a lot of what you see written about these issues, they're almost mutually exclusive or distinct. There's no overlap between the two. And none of these, none, none of this is well-defined. None of this, none of that model, that paradigm is not defined based on a rigorous analysis of, for example, primary sources from Al-Qaeda. It's not based on, you know, a, a deep understanding of the personnel or the biographies of these guys who run Al-Qaeda's global operations. And, but here's a line that, although it's hedged a little bit, the State Department is saying that Abu Obeda is expected to be part of this global management team um, as the head of AQIM. So he's not just the emir of AQIM. He's also thought to play a role in the global management of Al the Al-Qaeda organization. Bill, I'll let you tee off and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, you know, just first, I would say just by the fact that he leads one of the branches, and this is a big problem you and I have, right? The branch versus the affiliate idea. Um, well, that, in that you know, case, it's just a matter of language, but we can get into that. Yeah, it, it, but 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 it means it something. Is. But it means but something. it does yeah. mean something, right? Yeah. The affiliate is used is used to to when that language is used to say, well, there's just sort of tenuous links between loosely affiliated, loosely right, right, exactly. Right. Versus a branch being this is one of the arms of Al Qaeda, or um, and that is the more accurate description. And branch, just for for listeners to understand. Al-Qaeda itself uses the term branch in its internal discourse. So it's a much more organic thing. When you read their own papers, they talk about their branches. And it's much more organic because it, it evokes the image of a tree, right? It's all part of one or organism, one living organism. The idea of affiliates, I think unconsciously or not, or consciously, who knows, you know, it depends on how I think it's intentional, it. Tom. I, uh, I do. Some, I think well, with some people it is. Other people, I think it's just a word that gets thrown around and people just sticks. Um, it definitely evokes quite the opposite. It evokes this idea that they are just these 
you know, loosely affiliated or sort of tangential to the whole thing, uh, organizations. And in the case of AQIM, of course, you and I have been involved in debates in years past where people said, well, they just took the Al-Qaeda name. They're not really part of Al-Qaeda. And here's here's the State Department saying that the leader of AQIM is expected to also be a leader within Al-Qaeda's global management infrastructure. Right. And yeah, and I would argue just by definition, by his position as one of the heads of Al-Qaeda's branches, as a head of one of Al-Qaeda's branches, that he is is just by default a, a senior leader within Al-Qaeda's management. And we know, Tom, from past communications between Drew Dell and, and Nasser al-Wahishi, who was Al-Qaeda's general manager. And then you talk about um, Abdul-Malik Drew Dell, yes. Abu Musab. Wadu, who was the the first emir of AQIM, this guy Abu Abeda actually replaced him in uh, last year after Drugdel was killed in a French led counterterrorism operation. And I'm going right, to so get I'm going to get in a second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, right. But and and we know through others, right? We've seen communications with Shabab's emir with Al Qaeda Central. We, you know, there's it's it's a well documented. They're communicating back and forth, so um, they're planning. They're they're. They're pooling resources, their money flows back and forth, all of these things. I, you know, again, I would argue it's 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 not the language in that State Department that he's expected to play a role in Al-Qaeda's global management. I would argue he is already playing a role just just by definition, just by default of him being a leader of one Al-Qaeda's key, key branches. Um, you know, he's a very he's been a very influential figure within AQ Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb as served as uh, Drew Dell's deputy for how many years, Tom? Uh, I don't know, a number of years. Decade? I mean, I mean a yeah, while. At least a- he's, he's, been around, he's been around for a while. I mean, I, I remember when he, you know, after bin Laden was killed, he was the official for AQIM who renewed the allegiance for the British yes. to Zawahiri, you know? Exactly. So that, that, that speaks, That's a decade ago right there. Yeah, it's, it speaks to how important he is within the organization and how respected he is that he would be the one you know, trusted with that to do that um, at the time, you know, and this isn't to say they don't have problems. They have all sorts of internal problems for sure. Uh, but, you know, this is a guy who's been around for a long time, you know. Um, but, you know, you were talking about, you know, his role in the Al Qaeda global scheme. And he he's the successor to Abdul Malik Drakdel, otherwise known as Abu Musab Wadud, of course. You know, this is a long time Al Qaeda figure. He was the previous. Um, he was the head of the organization. It was previously known by the acronym of his French name, GSPC. And then he oversaw the formal merger of GSPC into Al-Qaeda's ranks to make AQIM, Al-Qaeda Islamic Maghreb, in 2006 and into 2007. Um, and so Dell was killed in early June of last year in a French-led operation. Here's the thing that I reminded readers in a piece of the Longwood Journal just this week. Um, the French military officials described him, this is being Drakdel now, the head of AQAM, as Ayman al-Zawahiri's third deputy, explaining that uh, Drakdel was also a member of al-Qaeda's global, quote-unquote, management committee. Well, Bill, what does any of that mean, right? Like, we, I mean, third third deputy, you know, he's, uh, you know, the Naib Amir or the deputy Amir, we know that he, currently that's probably Saif al before it was probably Abu Muhammad al-Masri. These are two Egyptians that are based in Iran. Abu Muhammad was killed in August of last year. Saif al-Adil was alive uh, and still alive as far as we know. Um, those were expected to be the you know, first and second deputies to Ayman al-Zawahiri. Does this mean the French think that Drakdel was right behind them in the pecking order? And was that high up that he was basically in the line of succession to possibly succeed Zawahiri someday? I mean, that's the implication of it, right, Bill? It sure is. I mean, I, I can't come to any other conclusion. And unfortunately, we couldn't get any further information from the U.S. military. It didn't want to comment on on Drukdel's uh, position. Uh, the French, you know, dropped that line and ran. So, you know, we're stuck with with trying to deduce, you know, use deductive reasoning to figure out, OK, what does what does this mean? What does Al Qaeda's global management committee look like? What does what decisions does it make? What yeah, what what entity is that actually? What, what's the name? Right. What is the name of it within Al Qaeda? What does it do and who's on it? Right. These are right. the epistemological issues here that most I would say most of the field just basically ignores. They don't they don't raise the issue, let alone try and express that this is a problem. Right. In terms of understanding all this. 
Yeah. It, you know, and just to voice the frustration, you know, it's, it, it, it seems at times when we ask these questions of, 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 you know, of state department of, of department of defense or others, it's almost like we're annoying them by continuing to try to understand what Al Qaeda is, what its senior management team looks like and how they operate. Like as if it's not important, but it's, it, it is very important. Um, to to understand Al Qaeda structure, you know, you and I, you, I, you've said this to me numerous times, and I believe you even said it on the podcast at some point. You know, we haven't the the U.S. government for what probably 15, 20 years hasn't tr made an effort to try to define Al Qaeda, what it is, what its senior, you know, how is it organized, what are its committees, um, who's leading these committees. We've just seen zero effort to to educate the public and the wider uh, counterterrorism community to provide this information. So it's, it's almost like we're, we're being nuisances, Tom, for trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah, so the point I make there on that is that the last wire diagram of sorts that I'm familiar with that the U.S. government provided on Al-Qaeda um, is in the 2004 9-11 Commission Report. Um, it's a bipartisan report reflected the intelligence assessments of Al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. And... So we're sitting here in 2021. I'm not aware of any other attempt to provide a wire diagram for Al-Qaeda or how it works. And that was a very rudimentary diagram, by the way, that was in that, that report. But, you know, that so that reflects basically what the U.S. government thought Al-Qaeda looked like prior to 9-11. Well, that was 20 years ago, you know, almost 20 years ago now, you know, and the thing is, is that we see hints that there are parts or, or boxes from a wire diagram in various statements, we're going to talk about this UN report here in a second, which provides some more hints. Um, you, but you see them in the, you know, you and I focus a lot of times on the Treasury and State Department counterterrorism designations, the terrorism designations that come out. And part of the reason why is because there are little nuggets in there that tell you that there is some sort of wire diagram to be had, right? And we should start trying to figure out what it is. And so, because they identify via the biographies of, of designated individuals, designated terrorists, they provide little snippets, like, for example, in 2016, we learned that the head of Al-Qaeda's military committee is in Iran, right? Well, you know, a guy we refer to as Hamza al-Khalidi, as various other Noam de Guerres. He's somebody who's well-known within Al-Qaeda. He was a, basically a field commander for Al-Qaeda who was groomed for a leadership position. Um, and But the thing is that, you know, he's the type of guy where nobody was talking about him prior to the designation by the U.S. Treasury Department uh, of him as a terrorist. And nobody was talking about, you know, everybody knows Al-Qaeda has a military commission, right? That was on the wire diagram for prior to 9-11. And we know that the U.S. hunted down uh, some figures within the military commission over time, including right after 9-11. But nobody seems to be concerned that we don't really know what does this overall thing look like, right? Like, what does the military commission look like today? What does it do? Who staffs it other than this, other than Hamza al-Khalidi? How does it work? How does it make decisions? How does it communicate with people outside of its immediate orbit. You know, all these questions are all epistemological questions that seem to go not just unanswered, but often unasked, I would say. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, Tom. It's well, well said. I, It's the lack of curiosity out there for all this. And, and I think this is part of the, you know, you had mentioned the policies and politics, I would add to that, uh, versus the actual understanding of the group. Well, when you're promoting ideas, that Al Qaeda is dead. It's irrelevant. It's a shadow of itself. It's all of these things. Well, then there's little curiosity out there to try to understand what Al Qaeda is today, because the the dominant narrative out there is that Al Qaeda is, you know, again, a shadow of itself. What's the latest one they said? The well, now the, the, now I I, I got to give the Biden administration a little bit of credit because they are. They've now adopted the, the other D word where they have degraded, but they only degraded. Talk, That's it's, it. It's, yes, de, it's yes. degraded in Afghanistan as opposed to decimated, which is always confusing because decimated implies decreased by one tenth. But then it's sort of the meaning of the word has evolved, I guess, over time in our lexicon. But um, but and a, but at the same time, you know, you could, we're going to get to Biden's speech on May 28th. They still recognize that Al Qaeda is out there. They're just arguing that it's basically a lesser force in Afghanistan than it is elsewhere, which I, I think is a highly dubious proposition. We're going to get into that epistemological problem as well. But but here's the point, right? When you talk about the policy ramifications of all this and how they affect analysis, I'll never forget. I mean, I, I've said this on the podcast before. I was at an event years ago where I was talking about AQIM 
And one of the other experts from a, you know, brand name expert from a brand name institution said, um, well, you know, you know, if AQIM is really part of Al Qaeda, then we're going to be sending, you know, a lot of Marines into West Africa to fight them, you know? And I said, hold on, wait a minute. I mean, I haven't even, to be honest, I hadn't even contemplated sending the Marines yeah. into West Africa to go after him. I mean, that's, that's think hardly, about that. As the, yeah. as, as the U.S. is disengaging from everywhere, you'd think that that's even a policy option? Well, at that point, I mean, that's so how this, so that, was before, that was before the yeah. total disengagement. Sure. Okay, so this is, a, this is a different time, right? So this is before the total, you know, run away from all this, uh, that the U.S. government mode is in, the mode the U.S. government's in now. Um, but... My point was, like, I had no intention of trying to justify, nor to this day do I want to justify, you know, increasing, you know, sending a lot of U.S. military forces into West Africa now to, to hunt down, for example, Abu Ubaidah, Yusuf al-Nabi. I mean, I'm not talking about some major commitment here on any of this. I'm just talking about whatever policy you think is the right one, you should at least have a good understanding of what it is you're trying to combat, right, uh, to a certain extent. And that includes sometimes doing nothing, sometimes doing something. Um, you know, it, it's in other words, the policy discourse is in this case is a good example of where the disconnect the dots paradigm I've talked about so often was used to justify inaction. And I said, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not really looking to get involved in any of these conflicts here in Africa. Yeah. But, you know, we should at least understand what's going on now. What was funny is that at the time this was a while ago, as this conversation happened at the time, as we subsequently learned from the Bilan files, for example, Yunus al-Maratani was serving as one of the chief external operations planners for bin Laden. Who's Yunus al-Maratani? Well, he's a guy who was in the GSPC and helped negotiate the merger of the GSPC into the formal merger into Al-Qaeda to make it Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. As his nom de guerre indicates, he's from Mauritania. He's somebody who was reporting to bin Laden throughout you know, much of the last couple of years of bin Laden's life on external operations. So he goes from negotiating the formal merger of AQIM into the AQ orbit uh, to being one of the chief external operations planners for bin Laden, working out of Pakistan and Iran, by the way. That's an interesting little nugget. Uh, you know, and doing all this on behalf of Al-Qaeda. And yet, here I am sitting across from the table with a guy telling me, well, AQAM can't be really Al-Qaeda. And literally, at the time he's saying that to me, Yunus al-Maratani is actually running, it was actually a big wig, you know, who graduated from AQAM up into the senior management of Al-Qaeda. And this is, this is where the disconnected dots and the epistemological problems really come into play, I would say. And here yeah, we, let me. Sure. Do you mind if I give an uh, Abdul Rahman al Al Maghrebi? Right, he's identified. What yep. was it? We've talked about him in previous podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So he's named as Al the the head of Al Qaeda's external communications office. By the way, external communications office is in capitals. Right. And then I'm reading from the. Which, the which pause just, on that. Pause on that, Bill. Right. So this yeah. is what you're reading from is another State Department reward for information, which I wrote up at Long War Journal, yep. mm -hmm. in which they described him as the head of the external communications office for Al Qaeda. Well, folks, what is that? What's that? Right. What's what that? You right. I mean, oh, exactly. He coordinates activities with Al Qaeda affiliates, obviously branches. We would argue same thing, right? So are they affiliates or are they branches? And by the way, McGrebby, as his name Noam Daguerre implies, he's from where? He's from the Maghreb. Africa. Right from the <laughs> from Africa, right? And so, uh oh, right. So yep. these guys can go from. I think he's a native Moroccan, right? So these guys can. I go, believe that's right. Yes, yeah. So these yeah. guys, these guys, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. This, but he's he's also a son-in-law of Zawahiri, and, and Zawahiri, right? Big, yep. He's also in Iran, by the way, which blows up all sorts right. of and, and that's and that's the point of yeah. That's the point I want to make, right? So this is put out, and again, this isn't just something. The interagency process to get someone designated and put on the rewards for justice list. They're saying he's in Iran, he's running operations, external, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of just saying, wow, what does this mean? Al-Qaeda is working from Iran. It's immediately dismissed um, in policy circles and because uh, this is just drumming up war against Iran. Do you think I, I, I want to support a war against Iran when we've failed in Iraq and failed in Afghanistan? Can't even beat the Taliban. What makes me think that going to war with Iran is an actually a good idea based on Al-Qaeda operating? We should at least understand what's happening. This is what you and I try to do. And use, the and use other non-military means, for example. There's a whole right. toolkit of things that can be done to yes. to to you know combat this. That doesn't mean you know doing a, a huge war in Iran is the only op the only thing only option on the table. I mean, it's just just I mean, again. You and I belabor this point sometimes. We talk about this a lot. This is just how stupid everything is in Washington, right? 
Like, you just can't even have a conversation with that without some ignoramus saying it's some neocon push for war or something. Right. It's just dumb, you know? It's right. dumb. I'm, I'm going to advocate war when we can't win lesser wars. Yeah, right. I, I, that's, that's the definition of insanity. I, and, and, by, you know, I try and by the to, way, the Trump administration did pursue one of these alternative means, right? Because the CIA, yes. the Trump administration worked with Israeli intelligence to assassinate Abu Muhammad al-Masri, another senior al-Qaeda figure who we were told he can't possibly be doing anything inside Iran. And whoopsie, he was actually the deputy mayor of al-Qaeda and running operations. And so they didn't go to, the Trump administration didn't go to war with Iran over this issue. They just quietly behind the scenes helped the Israelis assassinate one of the key al-Qaeda leaders. Now, you know. I mean, it goes to show that there are lesser policy options in total war with Iran when dealing with all this. Um, there are other, still other options, of course, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there with, with McGrevy, but I no, just thought no, it's, it's, it's not a sidetrack. It, it's, it's a perfect example. It's totally what, the, what I had in mind for this podcast, right? But also Asahab, right? He's also the head of Asahab. Yes. Right? Well, everybody knows Asahab, right? But what does it do? How many, right? It's, we know it's a central, pro, we know it's the propaganda arm for Al-Qaeda senior leadership. I don't actually don't like central. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's it's actually a propaganda, it's a propaganda arm for Al-Qaeda, the main propaganda arm for Al-Qaeda. Okay. He's been, McGrebi's been running, Abdul Rahman al-McGrebi has been running this for years now. Uh, how many people does he have working for him, right? Where are they? What are they doing, right? How do they coordinate? You know, there's all these Al-Qaeda videos that put out by the branches, than, and by senior leadership that oftentimes has this logo with all the different watermarks for all the Al-Qaeda branches alongside Asahab at the beginning. It's sort of meant to show there's this unity, um, at least within the media side of the organization, right? Why do we discount all that? Why do people pretend like that doesn't matter? Like you don't think the McGrebby and his folks who are, according to the State Department, is communicating with the quote-unquote affiliates, meaning the branches, what is he doing, right? How are they coordinating these videos? Are they coordinating these videos? All these questions, right, are not, again, are not being really asked, let alone answered. Yeah. To um, McGrebby, it says coordinates activities. What kind of activities? Is it see, is it just media activities? Is it military operations? Is it, you know, there's a ton there. Like, you know, it's funny. Like, remember the... Um, it also says he's general manager for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and Pakistan, right. What, is, what does that mean? It? Right. What does his staff look like? How many right. people are on it? That's the one issue I wanted to get when we recovered the bin Laden files. I was believed when it described that what Al-Qaeda's generals manager position, right? And what is the staff, right? We got information from that. There was zero curiosity in our community about what Al the, the general manager position, what there's, what, what is it? He had one, they had like two deputies. He had, oh, I don't remember the specifics. No, he had, two, he had two deputies, exactly right. And they had people, and, and then there people was, attending them, yeah. Right, there was other positions within that general management staff. Should we assume that McGrebby um, has a similar type staff? Is it different? Does this is this the same for the military committee? Is the same for the finance committee? Are there military and finance committees anymore? What are they doing? How do they work? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Who lead them? Yeah. Uh, this is these are the things you and I would love to know, and we think the information. You know, when you see something like McGrebby's designation, um, a, a knobby, right? Uh, or the, the rewards or whatever. Um, you know, these are the questions we have, and we just can't seem to tease this out. It's it's very frustrating. Well, but here's the thing, right? It is very frustrating. And not only are do people not asking about this stuff, it's widely assumed, I would say, in a lot of what's written, that none of this infrastructure even exists. You know, I had a conversation with somebody, <laughs> right. had a conversation with somebody the other day, and this person was telling me that in his opinion, Al-Qaeda is much more organized than people realize, right? I said, okay, you know, I mean, I'm willing to buy that based on these nuggets, I have scraps of information I have here and there. I mean, there's a lot I don't know, and I have to, you have to, we have to show me, we have to really demonstrate this stuff. But the point is, I said to this person, I said, you realize like the field's de facto position is, you know, <laughs> the commentary and the commentary is that there is no organization, right? That, you know, how many times have you seen people like they talk about Al Qaeda? It's like, well, if we just get Ivan Al Zawahiri, the whole thing's gonna crumble, boy. You know, like. Really? That's what Al-Qaeda is down to? This multi-generational organization has been reduced to a lone Egyptian in his late 60s, and if we get him, it's all over, or if he dies with COVID, we're all good? I mean, really? That's what this all comes down to? I mean... <laughs> Ayman al-Zawahiri has avoided you, the, probably one of the most intensive manhunts for 20-plus years now, or we're going on 20 years now. How? How did he do that? What is the support organization behind him that allows him to... 
avoid it. Where is he? Is he in Afghanistan? Is he in Pakistan? If he's in Pakistan, the, you know, again. Does, does he have an Abbottabad-style villa, you know? It, wait, wait. Right. Yeah. What are the relationships with the eyes? I, the, I, I have a million questions that no one in our field seems to care about. Yeah. Um, well, and, and now that there's all these there's all these incentives not to care about it, right? Just right, like wish it right. away. You know, it's all about China, China, China now. So don't worry about yeah. it. Um, well, you know, there's another thing about Zawahiri, and just to, this leads to another point. This is why this is all you know extemporaneous conversation. Sometimes I think it's probably better than if we try to script it. But remember, you know, you and I right away noticed in September 2019 when the U.S. and Afghans got a Simamar, they also got a Simamar a Simamar's courier too. I'm an Al Zawahiri. Oh, oopsie. So wait a minute. So you have a guy who was communicating back and forth with Ayman al-Zawahiri with the CMR, the head of AQIS, okay, in the Indian subcontinent, or at least the former first head of AQIS. We think at that time he had graduated to another position within al-Qaeda, which, of course, we don't know what that was either, do we? <laughs> right. Right, right? You know, because nobody knows, right? So it's, again, this is all this sort of this endless sort of, you know, I, I think, I hope, folks, I hope folks are understanding, like, look, these are, you know, Bill and I have been doing this for a long time, a long, long time now. And I hope you can find the dark humor in all this, but this is a real issue, right? I mean, think about the basic questions we've already outlined here. And we have, we're just getting started, right? I mean, we've got more, more to, to cover here. And there are all sorts of basic problems with understanding and stuff that really are not addressed, I would say. Yeah, I, 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 I just laugh thinking about it. Like, as I ask questions, just more questions pop in my head. I have to yeah, tell myself, exactly. stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, because you start connecting these guys, like who's communicating with whom, you know? I mean, it's, yeah. it's our, yeah. all right, so let's go, let's move on to this. Uh, so this, um, in previous episodes, we've had Edmund Fitton uh, Brown on. Uh, he's, he leads this team of experts for the UN Security Council. We've covered his reports, the Long War Journal, and they, uh, this, same team of experts, I think it was his group, uh, came out with a new yes, report. Yes, it's his group. It's yeah. the sanctions and monitoring yeah, right. team. Came yeah. out with a new report on Afghanistan. And let's dig into a little bit about what this report says. Hopefully we can have him on again to talk about this. We have a lot of respect for him and his team. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing, you know, part of when we talk with him, if you listen to our previous episode with him, I teased all these epistemological problems, I think, in our conversation with him. You know, I said, I think they're working on trying to figure out what Al-Qaeda looks like. And I said, well, look, you know, there are basic problems here that we have to have to be thought thought about and framed correctly to, to come up with an answer. But this report, um, you know, there's a lot in this report to cover. We're going to cover just some of it. But let's hone in on the areas where there are some real interesting questions to be asked. Right. And so the first thing that's no surprise, this is not really all that interesting, is this team finds that there's you know, that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda remain closely aligned and show no indication of breaking ties, right? Okay, we know that. That's true. We agree with that. Um, nobody has been able to provide any evidence of real tensions between the two. This is one of, this is one of the re reasons why we, we have all these epistemological problems. There's this fault line in understanding the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda that's been exacerbated by Taliban apologists and revisionist history. And there's just a lot of bad information on there out there about this. Um, you know, I would, I tell people all the time, start with the 9-11 commission report to get a basic overview of it. Um, and there's a lot of extra details to be filled in from there, but here we are in 2021 and this UN monitoring team can't find any evidence that they're going to sever ties as was promised by Zalmay Kulazad, special representative, and then secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. All right. We've covered that ad nauseum in the past. So let's just move on. That that's, that's a, a done. so far we'll, we'll report if there's ever any evidence to change, our opinions on any of this, but so far there are, there's no evidence. Um, the, the report also says member states report no material change in this relationship, meaning the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which has grown deeper as a consequence of personal bonds of marriage and shared partnership and struggle now cemented through second generational ties. Right. And this is another issue that we've talked about in the past that there, you know, there's all this intermarriage between quote unquote Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. You can, sometimes, a lot of times you can't even tell which organization these guys belong to. One of the things you did a long time ago, Bill, and talk, this again speaks to the epistemological issues here, and I, I, I stole this from you, was the idea of dual-hatted guys, right? And in some cases, they're not even dual-hatted. They're like triple-hatted or quadruple-hatted, yeah. right? Because yeah, right. you'll have a guy who's, who's an Al-Qaeda commander who also belongs to free organizations that have acronyms of, of their names from, from Pakistan. Like he's a Huji guy, and then he was a Hume guy, and he was this and that, and he's also a TTP guy, a Pakistani Taliban, and he's also working with the Afghan Taliban. And you just you sort of become like, well, wait a minute, well, how does this all work? And that speaks to epistemological problems here. There's there's this there's there's actually this 
genetic overlap for some of these guys between these organizations that they embody that creates a problem in terms of defining how these organizations work. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the second generation, right? Like that's, that's their, their literal genetic and overlap between, you know, your Taliban leader, you know, the, the yeah, inner marriage. That's the, what I'm that's, saying. Some, some of these guys are literally, literally the embodiment of the marriage between, yeah. you know, between yeah, the, and, parts and of these much, organizations. To its credit, the U.S. military is the one that's first started using the term dual-hatted commanders in their press releases when they were identifying either a Taliban uh, commander who was was also part of Al-Qaeda or an Al-Qaeda commander. You know, again, what's the difference at that point? If you're, you're, you're dipping your toe in both pools, you might be part of both organizations. That The U.S. military, to its credit, did that. And yet, there, it, it, you know, we reported on it. And yet there was very little, under, it, to this day, there is very little understanding of that and what that means. And why would we enter, you know, you want to talk about policy. This is one thing where, you know, you and I are always very hesitant to discuss policy. But one policy we vehemently disagreed with was negotiating with the Taliban. And that is because um, because of these enduring ties. And um, until there was direct evidence that the Taliban was either going to denounce or um, ideally turn on Al-Qaeda, there's no reason to negotiate with them because they're just they are literally supporting an enemy of the United States. And, uh, you know, we sh- you and I and I hope most of our listeners abhor any type of agreement that that justifies the Taliban's relationship with Al Qaeda, that whitewashes it, and that whitewashes at the Taliban's role um, for its complicity with uh, with nine eleven. So, and and other terrorist plots that have happened since. All right, yeah, I mean, I, my my take on that was a little bit different, which is I don't mind us the U.S. talking to anybody, but the point is that there was such there's such ignorance and confusion about all this. Yes, stuff. they yes. had no idea what they were doing really. And, yeah. and, and, and if and and the, if to- you know, let me just if you don't mind, yeah, you know, let me finish this point. So yeah, like one, one of the points I've made is like, you know, when they talk about the de- defining the break between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, this plays into the epistemological problems here, because it's clear to me from talking to people who are involved in this process and and testifying alongside some of them in co- before Congress and reading their stuff, they can't define the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, let alone define what a break would be, right? What, what it would actually take to, 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 to break, to have a break between the two. And so then to then enshrine the idea that the Taliban is going to deliver on this without any kind of enforcement or verification mechanisms or any kind of accountability in that servile agreement between the two, that all you're doing is enshrining the epistemological problems, basically. You're saying, you're basically saying, you know, we're just going to vouch for the Taliban without actually understanding any of this, you know, and that doesn't make it, we're going to get into why that really matters here in a second, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, listen, I, if if it was advantageous to the United States, if it actually would further peace in Afghanistan, if it would lead to a break between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, of course I would support negotiations as distasteful as they are. But but as we know, that isn't the case. It was never the case. It was just a flat out whitewashing. So I couldn't support them in, in current form. That's that's what I was trying to get at. All right. So let's go through the go back to epistemological problems here. So they so one of the other things in this report from the UN it talks about um, Al Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan. It talks about member state information pointing to a presence in at least fifteen provinces, which is broadly consistent with you know what you and I have reported through the years based on various sources. Um, we could do a whole other thing on that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in the, the final segment. But um, there's there's another detail in here which talks about how Al Qaeda's presence in across Afghanistan is led by al-Qaeda's Jabhat al-Nasr wing, meaning the front, Jabhat al-Nasr is the front for victory or the victory front for al-Qaeda. Well, that's a name I haven't seen before in the Afghan context. Uh, that means that according to this information, if it's correct, that has been passed on uh, from member states, al-Qaeda has something called the Jabhat al-Nasr wing of its operations in Afghanistan. Um, now, I don't, I doubt this is wholly distinct, for example, from Al-Qaeda and the Indian subcontinent. Uh, talking to some people, I think there's probably a lot of overlap between the two. And in fact, the, although it doesn't identify him, it says that this wing of Al-Qaeda is under the direction of Sheikh Mahmoud, who probably, although I can't say this with certainty, is probably Sheikh Osama Mahmoud, the current head of, of AQIS, you know. But at least this is a terminology. I don't know where this came from, uh, or, or it implies that Al-Qaeda is using it itself to describe it. But isn't that telling that they have a wing devoted to victory in Afghanistan? Uh, quite the opposite of uh, a spent organization. They have a whole part of their operation, apparently, that is dedicated to their coming victory. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, you know, when you when you pointed that out to me, my mind perked up, and of course, the million questions started cropping up in my mind. And and instead, we're just sort of let, and this is not a criticism of this report, by the way. It's a fantastic report. Where we think that this is probably one of the best, um, one of the best products that is uh, out there, put out on a regular basis to help us up learn. It, it doesn't mean we think it's perfect. I mean, there are all sorts of issues, of right? course. Right, yeah, but, but and in this case, yeah. it just leaves us questions, and right. so we're it, it leaves us craving for more. And uh, I am working on getting Edmund on the show, and um, we actually may be able to get him next week. We'll see. Um, but yeah, so maybe we could ask him when we get him. Okay, so. Um, I want to skip over some of the stuff we talked about in the past. I don't want to get into every little nugget in here. I want to skip right. to I want to skip to the big the big thing that requires a lot of conversation. Okay, because the big thing is this footnote. There's a footnote. Uh, let's see here. It's footnote eleven, I think it is. Let me bring, it up. bring it up on right. screen. Yes. Okay, so this is a big deal. Uh, what they say in this footnote, and it's not surprising to you and me. We've covered him for years, but it's a footnote discussing Sir Jun Hakani who is the head of the so-called Akani Network. He's also the deputy emir of the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. So this, this guy's a big wig. Uh, you remember he there was an op-ed published in his name by the New York Times, uh, which I debunked at the time uh, based on a lot. And it, based on a lot of, for a lot of reasons, I would say. But this footnote, let's let's talk about what this footnote says. So this is sort of, this is the sort of thing that's buried in a footnote on a page where if you actually understand the implications of this, if this is right, it's actually deserves its own report, right? <laughs> I mean, it deserves its own, it deserves its own above the, above the fold sort of coverage in our community, so to speak. And the footnote reads that Siraj Akhani, I'll skip over the language about his role within uh, the Taliban. It says he is also assessed to be a member of the wider Al Qaeda leadership, right? Uh oh, so. You're saying that the deputy emir of the Taliban is also a member of the Al-Qaeda leadership. Uh, what? Right? So you and I reported years ago that our sources said he was, at the time, Siraj was possibly had a seat on the Al-Qaeda Shura Council advisory board uh, to the emir of Al-Qaeda. And I still think that was right. Um, now, there's been reorganization since then. I'm going to get to the latter half of that sentence in a second here, Bill. There's been reorganization since then. But... This is identifying without providing any specifics, and I want to know what the specifics are, how they actually fits into the organizational scheme, is saying that the deputy emir of the Taliban is also a member of al-Qaeda leadership. Now, is that surprising to you and me, Bill? No. we've been Absolutely not. How many, how many years have you been documenting the Haqqadis overlap with al-Qaeda? How many years now? Yeah. Right? Uh, since 2007, 2008. I mean, we're right. talking almost 15 years at this point. And Siraj's father, Jalaluddin, was one of the big, you know, he, he you know, obviously he worked with the CIA in the 80s, which probably led to some of the epistemological problems here. Because, you know, one of the things that you and I have discussed is that if you look through the 9-11 Commission report, which has a lot of merit to it, it's also a highly imperfect document. And here's one of the epistemological problems there. There's not a single mention of Jalaluddin and Akhani or the Akhani's in the 9-11 Commission report, even though the Akhani's helped build al-Qaeda. And help build the camps where the 9-11 hijackers were trained, right? So how, how is that not even mentioned in the report, you know? And so his son, Jalaluddin's son, Siraj, to this day is a big wig. He's really the, the you know, I would say he's the kingpin here in, all, in some sense for the region and for what's going on. Uh, you know, his, his father, Jalaluddin, not only did he help build Al-Qaeda, but he helped Bin Laden escape, according to Bin Laden's bodyguard. He helped Bin Laden escape from Tora Bora in late 2001. He kept Bin Laden alive to fight another day. And we can go we can go on and on and on and on about the Haqqani's over how they overlap with Al-Qaeda to this day. But here's this report saying that Siraj Haqqani, who's currently the deputy leader of the Taliban, is also a member of the wider Al-Qaeda leadership. Well, you know, if you're talking about this is what I'm talking about in terms of the people who negotiated this deal with Taliban didn't even really understand the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Did they address the fact that Siraj Akhani is deeply in bed with Al-Qaeda when they were negotiating it? Probably not. In fact, Siraj's, what was his brother, Anas, was actually attending the, attending the negotiations uh, at Doha, what? right? So who was Anas reporting to, by the way? If his brother is sitting uh, as part of the Al-Qaeda leadership, what's going on here? You know, yep. like who, who's talking, you know, who are you actually negotiating with? Um, so, all right. So the next part of the sentence is, muddles things a little bit. It says that Siraj is not part of the, Al Qaeda core leadership, which I think is again, I've already we've already debunked the distinction between core and affiliates. I don't I don't 
like that term for a lot of reasons. I don't think it means. But it says in parentheses defining the core leadership as the Hatin Shura. Now, this is this is, leads us to the biggest revelation, I think, in a footnote in a report, right? What the heck is the Hatin Shura within Al-Qaeda? So I, we, you and I have been talking about this for a while. We haven't talked about it on the podcast. I haven't written about it yet. I'm working on a report for a long word journal on this. As far as I can tell, the Hatin Shura is the supreme body within Al-Qaeda. This is the most important part of Al-Qaeda. And I think a few analysts have mentioned it in passing in their analyses to their credit, right? And have, have brought it up. I think it's gotten a mention here or there, but it's not been in any official U.S. government document or terrorist designation. It's not built in or wire diagrammed in any, in any kind of formal way into people's understanding of Al-Qaeda. And yet, as far as I'm aware now, basically having asked around about this and working on this for a while, the Teen Shura or the Teen Committee is actually the supreme body within Al-Qaeda, is the supreme decision-making authority, I would say, within Al-Qaeda, based on what, I, what I'm hearing. It, you know, much of the leadership of the Teen Shura is actually in Iran and running it from Iran, which is, again, raises the epistemological problem. People don't want to admit that there's any overlap there uh, of interest between Iran and Al-Qaeda and that the two can work together and then Iran, the Iranians can provide them safe haven. Um, I'm guessing that Saif Al-Adil is probably the head of this shura. He's the, also the deputy mirror diamond and al-Zawahiri. But this raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it, Bill? You and I have been talking about this before the podcast. You and I, the last two days, have been talking about, well, what the heck is this thing? How many people are on it? What does it do? How does it make decisions? How does it communicate with parties outside of Iran or elsewhere? Who else is on it outside of Iran? Who, who's, it, who's on it inside Iran, right? There's all sorts of questions here about this, right, Bill? Yeah, no, you, you, you asked pretty much the biggies. And yeah, this was such a, when you pointed this out to me, my eyes perked up. I'm like, whoa, that's a, that, you know, this is the first official mention of the Hatin Shura that I've seen in, you know, in a government document, United Nations in this case. And yeah, I mean, I want to know who's on it, what they do, how do they communicate? You know, is Anabi on it, right? Are the, are the branch leaders? If they are, and it's a Shura, then they're, they're talking. How are they talking? How often are they talking? What are they discussing? It's it's fascinating. Is this part of a reorganization? Re if, if I recall, Tom, the Al Qaeda they used to call it the Shura Mishles, right? Uh, for the for the central leadership, that's what. Does that exist anymore? Is that has that been subsumed by the Hatin Shura? A million questions, and um, you know, it it just leaves us begging for more uh, when we see this. Well, and then according to the UN, too, it says that Siraj Akhani is part of the wider Al-Qaeda leadership, but he's not on the team, Shura. Well, then, what is he in the Al wider well, Al-Qaeda leadership? What's the what wider Al-Qaeda leadership? What committee is he on? What Shura is he on? What is, I mean, how does this all work? And these are the foundational, these, this is how insane this all is. We're having this conversation in 2021, and these foundational questions have not been worked out. You know, they've not been tracked. I mean, it's part of, it goes back to a fundamental issue, too. Bill and all and understanding all this is that you and I um, years ago remember we talked about how President Bush sauntered out to the podium and he said that America had killed or captured two thirds of Al Qaeda's leadership I think it was two thirds and then um, President Obama comes out to the same podium and he says that under his leadership America has killed or captured three quarters of Al Qaeda's leadership and you and I both did a double take we're like well. Two, two thirds of what? Three quarters of what? I mean, was it three quarters of the remaining third? You know, uh, you, uh, how many guys do we had to start with here? This was always a problem. Like they didn't, they couldn't tell us how many Al-Qaeda's were there at the beginning of all this, uh, beginning of the real campaign in 2001, right after 9-11. How many, were, what was the pre-existing, you know, sort of base of, you know, no pun intended, base of Al-Qaeda leaders? And, you know, then how were they able to, who did they have, in basically, who were they grooming to replace them? They fell. How many did, were they able to replace them? Well, what was the sort of the starting pool? All of these issues, you know, when you saw all these metrics, you know, when you say two thirds or three quarters, that means you've got a ratio in mind. You're able to calculate. You have a denominator, which should be 100% of the Al-Qaeda leadership. And you're saying, you know, that 66 or 67% of that was killed or captured. And then 75% of that was killed or captured. But you and I knew that these were just, phony metrics right that they didn't actually know they didn't actually know how many they killed or captured 
Yeah, so we never really got like President Bush's list. Apparently he had a list and he would cross the name off it or cross cross over the picture if it existed. Right. So okay, fine. So then when And by the at way, the end just of- insert one thing real there quick there and like it's not yeah. his fault or President Obama's fault. No, they, they no, don't, absolutely they don't, they, not. Or that they don't know not. what the total pool is, right? It's a collective yeah. failure, really. But yeah. go ahead, sorry. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So at the end of Bush's term, uh, second term, he initiated the drone campaign. Really, it started midway through the... But it really started to take off in 2008. And then it was handed over to, to President Obama. And then you start seeing, the, start seeing the names. You get the hit list, right? That's what we, we tracked. And these are some really big names. There's a lot of them. I have a page at the Longboard Journal somewhere where I document the, the senior leaders killed uh, in U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. Um, and obviously, it wasn't just Pakistan where they were killed. There was attacks and we targeted leaders in Iraq and, and elsewhere in Africa and whatnot, Somalia. But when you start looking at this list, you're going, wow, these are really high profile individuals, very, very senior leaders. How is, did, did Al-Qaeda generate that, regenerate that from the two, as you said, from the two thirds? Did it, or was that pool bigger than, than the, that was thought in, during the time of the Bush administration? And yet, here's the other thing. Al-Qaeda's operations have expanded globally. It, it, it's, ex- it's, footprint, pun, no pun, it's footprint, has, its base it's, has definitely expanded. Its footprint has exploded, pun, pun intended. Um, and there's more leaders. There's more people to staff. Now you have a, a, a team, Shura. Does it have five guys on it? Does it have a dozen guys? Is it dozens? Uh, is there, there scores? We don't know. It's probably in the low numbers to keep it actually, if it's a well, decision making. Actually, body. I this is where, based on my conversations and asking around about it, I think it actually, it's not just a few people. I think this thing is, I think, it, I, I think, and this is, I'm going to put a big asterisk around this. So I'm now expressing my own epistemological uncertainty around this, which is vast, okay? Because I'm still, I'm still working on this. I think it's in the dozens. Uh, oh, I would agree. And, yeah. and here's why I would say that. You would have, very likely you're going to have your deputy emir, your general manager, every branch leader, maybe their deputies, maybe some key, you know, committee. Lead, like, it, again, we don't know what it is because no one's actually defined it. But when you start adding those, you're in the at least over a dozen, probably twenty, you know, in in that number, right? I mean, it I, makes I, sense. What, what I'm saying, but we is, don't yeah, really know. It could right? it could easily be more than that. Is what based on what it, I'm it could it yeah. absolutely yeah. Could. So I, I don't could. we don't know. We're trying to figure that out. But but the you know the other thing is is that um, it's this is some inference on my part. I think that this Hatin Shura was stood up circa 2015. Why? Well, because whatever there's a murky. Detention for some senior Al Qaeda figures, including Saif al Adel, Abu Muhammad al Mazari, who was subsequently assassinated, um, Abu al Qar al Mazari, who relocated to Syria and was killed. He oversaw one of the big fiascos of Al Qaeda in Syria. Uh, uh, but you know, the these guys were freed in 2015. They were all legacy senior veteran Al Qaeda guys with a pedigree that was impeccable from the jihadi perspective. I think that this was part of their effort to reorganize Al Qaeda and bring power under their sway. You know, bring bring the organization under its sway. I think it's probably part of it. Um, I think there are, are other aspects of this, but you know, as far as we know, um, based on all public reporting, Saif al Adel and Abu Muhammad al Masri, of course, decided to stay in Iran, and they were leading the Satin Shura from inside Iran. There are other guys. McGrevy's probably on it, of course, as you mentioned, and then there there are all sorts of other guys who we can name as suspected Satin Shura members. But the point is that none of this has been fleshed out, you know, uh, to to an extent that um, anybody can have any confidence in understanding all this. You know, I, I what I would encourage the U.S. government to do is to designate the support staff, uh, designate the members of the teen shirt. First of all, explain what the teen shirt is, explain who's on it, explain how it's evolved over time, assuming it has evolved over time, which I think it has, um, and explain who the supporting staff is, right, who those members are, designate them. And also then uh, get into how this this body coordinates activities with other parts of Al Qaeda elsewhere. You know, I think these this that's in other words, tell the story or flesh out the story of the teen sure and what it exactly is and how it, how it operates. Yeah, and Tom, if I if I may, just with one more theory on why was the teen sure formed? You know, we've got to remember if, if 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 you're correct, and it was around 2015, and I agree, the release of. Uh, Abu Muhammad al-Masri, Saif al-Adil, and, and others uh, certainly would play a role in this. But also, you, at that time, you have the rise in ISIS. 
um, which of course is a sort of the, the bastard child of, of Al Qaeda. And, you know, Al Qaeda certainly at that point in time was very sensitive and they're, they're going to try to figure out a way to prevent the dissolution of Al Qaeda or the breakup of Al Qaeda. So I suspect again, but do I know that? No, I don't know that. It's just, I can only guess, but these are the things, you know, why was it formed? I, I, I really want to know that. I'm sure I'm guessing those answers are out there. Please share them with us. U.S. government, United Nations, whoever, can, whoever you are, let us know. We're, we're dying here. Well, I absolutely 100% agree that the rise of ISIS played a role in this. We know we've caught wind that Al-Qaeda had efforts to reorganize internally because of the rise of ISIS. One of the things we know, but we haven't been able to explain it because we haven't gotten clarity on it. But we know we know that there were, based on a variety of sources, that there was an effort to reorganize these bodies internally to have more coordination across the Al-Qaeda branches to prevent another Al-Qaeda branch from breaking off and becoming the next, either joining ISIS or becoming the next ISIS. Remember, ISIS grew not by, ISIS didn't earn the defection of any established Al-Qaeda branch, contrary to what some of the so-called experts were predicting, right? That didn't happen. AQIP didn't defect. Shabab didn't defect. AQIM didn't defect. You know, Al-Qaeda actually stood up AQIS in 2014, which, you know, so established a new branch. Yeah, JNM in West Africa was established by AQIM subsequently, right? It's evolved. Had other problems in Syria, which again, I'm going to skirt around that right now because that's that's a whole other, you want to talk about- It's complicated. You want to talk about epistemological <laughs> problems. You could have epistemological problems just based on the Syria portfolio yeah, alone, right? right I mean, there's all right. sorts of problems there in terms of understanding what's going on. Um, and I, I don't have all the answers there either. Um, but the point is, is that we know that Al-Qaeda took efforts to make sure that ISIS's efforts to poach- uh, were limited, that its efficacy was limited. We know that, and you can follow it. I mean, ISIS did have some success in poaching some commanders, but it was never any of the emirs. It was never the whole branches. We know Baghdadi from some intra-jihadi reporting tried to get AQAP to defect, for example, and they didn't, right? We know they tried to get Shabab to defect, and they didn't. Um, and in fact, the Omniot, the internal security services of the Shabab, there's good reporting on that they hunted down ISIS defectors, you know? So anyway, it, it, I, I don't, I, after 2013, 2014, any of Al-Qaeda's reorganizational or organizational decisions had to take into account ISIS and the rise of ISIS and countering such a thing. They wanted to prevent further defections of ISIS, and they also wanted to counter, wanted to prevent a new ISIS from emerging. They wanted to prevent a new, you know, now they also had an additional problems in Syria, which were, you know, one of these guys, one of these characters, Abu al-Qaeda al-Masri, you know, um, I think was directly probably his man, his poor management was directly responsible for some of the problems that arose in Syria because he was in Syria and he oversaw al-Nusra's rebranding into Jabhat uh, Fatma al-Sham and then and subsequently that organization evolved into Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. That's a whole other basket of problems right there and we have no idea you know what al-Qaeda thinks about that internally at the moment in terms of how they're dealing with it, how they're dealing with that problem. Uh, you know, that's what I mean by that. But again, so all these are epistemological problems, and we can keep going on and on about this UN report. I just want to, we just want to raise those select few things, especially about the Siraj Akhani point about Siraj Akhani being, you know, according to this report, a member of the wider Al Qaeda leadership. That's a that's a big nugget. But let's close, Bill, on one last epistemological issue here, and it it, it, t it talks about how the policy of all this, how this affects how policy is sort of portrayed to the American people. Now, again, you can argue in favor of um, withdrawing from Afghanistan. You can argue in favor of withdrawing from everywhere, you know, make those arguments, but at least have the facts right about what you're withdrawing from, right? And on May 28th, President Biden gave a, a speech before U.S. service members and their family members, and he, and he said, I'm going to read his quote here. He said, and now as we draw down, meaning from Afghanistan, we're also going to focus on the urgent work of rebuilding over-the-horizon capabilities that allow us to take out al-Qaeda if they return to Afghanistan. I just want to focus on that phrase, if they return to Afghanistan. Well, folks, the issue is not if al-Qaeda returns to Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda is already there. We've been documenting this for years. It's, do it's documented in the UN report. You can you can you know, go across multiple sources and corroboration from Al-Qaeda's Thabat newsletter to operational data to UN reporting to, you know, DIA reporting to U.S. Treasury Department reporting. I mean, you can build this composite matrix of reports from all these open source news accounts. There's all sorts of reporting you can put together. It's clear that Al-Qaeda is there. Um, you can debate and, and there's a epistemological problem in terms of depending um, 
defining Okaya there and explaining how they're there they are, right? Uh, but they're there. You know, it's not a matter of them returning. The question is preventing them from using this as a bait in, in President Biden's mind, in the U.S. government's mind, preventing them from using this as a base for future operations, which I think is somewhat a narrow way of viewing this. But anyway, Bill, doesn't that speak to the problems we're talking about here? That we're ta- that we have the president of the United States talking about if Al Qaeda returns to Afghanistan when we have all these sources that say they're already there. Yeah, it, it seems like there's an R word issue when it comes to Al Qaeda in Afghanistan as well, uh, not just the D word. Um, return, resurgent, um, renewed. You know, you'll see these things mentioned, and as you and I have argued that they've been there all the time. Um, what they what they may they may be rejuvenated um because of a, a Taliban victory, but that doesn't mean they weren't there fighting alongside the Taliban the entire time. One of the interesting things, the UN report gives an estimate of 500 Al-Qaeda fighters. I mean, I, and it's it's kind of unclear. Is this AQIS, AQIS and, and, and Al-Qaeda um command structure, or you know, is that is that part of the team Shura, right? Or whatever you want to call it, Al-Qaeda Central, Al-Qaeda, you know general command. Um, but then they will go on to mention that there's eight to 10,000 foreign fighters um, that are fighting in, alongside the Taliban in Afghanistan. And they says mainly comprised of individuals, I'm quoting from this, Central Asia, North Caucasus region of the Russian Republic, Russia Federation, Pakistan, and uh, Xinjiang, Uyghur Autonomous Region in China, among others. Well, we know that Al-Qaeda helps bring these these individuals from the and it also goes on to say that many uh, most of them are affiliated with the Taliban many also support al qaeda i think it's more than a this is sort of one little critique i have of this report um al qaeda brings them in helps them get organized helps them get into the groups and then what they do and this report talks about this too is the Taliban wants these people fighting under the Taliban banner um, they don't want them to identify as al qaeda or the Turkestan Islamic party which we know is basically an al qaeda branch, uh, Abdullah Haq al-Turkistani, is uh, the head of the, the Turkestan Islamic Party, um, is also an al-Qaeda leader. So what does that make his followers? Again, you know, it goes on and on here, but, you know, we're talking, you know, a potential, ten, you know, it could be 10,000 foreign fighters, mostly, you know, again, mostly affiliated with al-Qaeda. Um, what does this, you know, how does that mean that al-Qaeda is going to return to Afghanistan? And do we really think that over the horizon strikes, where are they going to be based? Uh, Pakistan isn't going to do it. They said no. Obviously, Iran's out. Given U.S.-Russian relations, I don't think any of the stands are going to agree to base U.S. forces. So you're left with the Indian Ocean, Diego Garcia, based in Diego Garcia, or aircraft carriers, or strikes from, you know, perhaps from the Gulf or whatnot. And you're going to go after eight to 10,000 foreign terrorist fighters? And, and again, oh, and by the way, if someone well, were actually, affiliated with the Islamic State as, as well, you know, how are we going to do this? We couldn't do this with U.S. troops in country, with U.S. air bases. It couldn't be beaten back. You had Taliban gains despite that, which the U.N. also notes. I'll, I'm sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I, I just wanted to give one one additional point on that. It's not even that they, they don't even pretend that they're going to go after all these foreign fighters. No. The over the over the horizon refers to, I think, two things. One, um, Possibly providing air support to the Afghan government, you know, in, in terms of battles. Maybe that's a big maybe around. Yeah, but they mainly said counterterrorism. Yeah, but they've they've been providing some air cover to some of the Afghans in the months since the, the drawdown began. But yes, that's why I'm saying it's a maybe because I don't know that they're going to continue to do that at all. Maybe not at all. But the other thing is the counterterrorism point. So the counterterrorism point is that for over the horizon means they think. The, the implicit argument is that they can distinguish between this vast pool of foreign jihadis and those that are actually just a threat to the U.S. or the West, right? Yeah, good luck with that, right? Good luck figuring out from this pool, you know, who in there is somebody that you need to launch a drone strike from afar or whatever, or, you know, a cruise missile strike or air strike, however you're going to try and carry it out. Good luck trying to figure that out. You know, you're going you're gonna to have very limited capacity in that regard. Uh, and epistemological problems for understanding Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan existed throughout the last 20 years, I don't think they're going to get better upon retreating, right? I don't think they're going to get, I don't think these issues are all going to suddenly clear up now that we're out of, the U.S. is out of country. But here's one other point about the defining Al-Qaeda and the numbers, right, Bill? See, and this is why the numbers game doesn't make any sense. Well, we just talked about Siraj Akhani 
being, according to the same report, a member of the wider Al-Qaeda leadership. A couple of additional facts. We know from other reporting from the Treasury Department and the UN that the Connies have talked about building a new, a new joint army with Al-Qaeda. We know that the Connies are already overlapping with Al-Qaeda, not just in Surah Juden, but all sorts of other figures in the Connies are overlapping with Al-Qaeda currently. And we know that the Connies have thousands, thousands of fighters under the command in Afghanistan, under the Taliban's banner. And we know that um, the Akhani's have been deeply in bed with Al-Qaeda since basically the beginning, and that nobody, and oftentimes you can't even distinguish between the two, right? How do we know how many, how much of the Akhani network is really just part of Al-Qaeda? I mean, at what point do you become, is it is it Al-Qaeda linked or just a misdefinition on our part in terms of understanding this stuff, yep. right? And it's not just Siraj Akhani. I mean, what no, about brothers and, and, yeah, 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 and, and outside, I'm talking outside the Akhani's. Yeah, how many of these sure. Taliban leaders have support in, in Helmand? I mean, that's not the Akhani's. Yet Asim Umar and uh, Zawahiri's uh, um, courier are killed in Helmand. Yet another senior Al-Qaeda leader killed in Nimruz. These are areas that are not traditional Akhani network. So we're talking, you know, there's tens of thousands of Akhani fighters, without a doubt. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, what point are we, are, are, are we debating? What is Al Qaeda? What is the Taliban? How are we able to even draw lines between the two at the, at this point? Well, and the other thing about the report is it accurately says that the Connie's are basically the most effective combat fighting force for the Taliban. Well, if the Connie's are deeply in bed with Al Qaeda to the extent where you can't even distinguish between the two in a lot of cases, who's the most effective combat fighting force for the Taliban in 2021? Right. Well, I'll leave it there, I think, uh, for listeners to understand that, uh, you know, in, in my my view of all this is that basically the emperor is nude, that these epistemological problems mean that the U.S. has, has even after all these years and hundreds of billions of dollars, did not did not build an effective understanding of this stuff, a robust understanding of stuff. I think there are pockets of understanding of it inside the U.S. government, but there's a lot of work yet to be done as even as the U.S. tries to bring its involvement in these wars to a close. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I mean, I think it's appropriate that we end this on one of many questions. And uh, I, you know, it, we keep looking for clarity on this and, and, and unfortunately it keeps getting more cloudy and more cloudy. Um, you know, perhaps uh, perhaps we'll get some more information on the Hatim uh, Shore. Perhaps we'll get more understanding of the Haqqani, Taliban, Al-Qaeda nexus. Um, I think you and I actually have a pretty good understanding of that. But, you know, it would be really, we're craving this information to be put out by the U.S. government, by the United Nations, which, again, does an excellent job with this report. But the problem here in the United States is there is no interest in fighting these wars anymore. So it really takes away the desire to explain this. But um, I, you, I know you and I hope and pray that uh, this doesn't come back to bite us. Well, even when there wasn't, even when there was an interest in fighting these wars, the U.S. didn't get yeah. it right. So, right. Uh, so there you go. Um, well, this has been episode 50 of Generation Jihad. It's as chipper and as upbeat as usual. Uh, again, uh, if you're looking for some happy talk, don't come here, folks. Uh, but thank you for listening to episode 50 of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts, and we will see you again soon.